Hello, listeners. As an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. And now I can also accept Zelle and Venmo. Just use my email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You got speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? Good last, huh? Doing that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 226 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 11, Moon Launch. While Armstrong and Aldrin were on the moon, every two hours the Columbia Command Module circled the moon in silent passage with its lone occupant, Mike Collins. The Command Module was closed quarters for three men. But with Armstrong and Aldrin gone, it was almost roomy. Collins folded up the center couch and stowed it underneath the left-hand seat so that now there was a clear aisle from the side hatch to the lower equipment bay. The extra room would be needed in case there was a problem with the docking mechanism, forcing Armstrong and Aldrin to make an emergency spacewalk from the lunar module to the command module. For now, it gave Collins unaccustomed freedom. He scurried from his couch to the lower equipment bay and back again, checking systems, making navigational sightings, and attending to a host of housekeeping chores. Command Module Number 107, the spacecraft he had nursed through its checkout at Downey, California, and piloted across nearly a quarter million miles, was purring along without a single malfunction. Collins felt so confident that when one of the command module's cooling circuits grew too cold, he chose not to follow Mission Control's advice to go through a lengthy malfunction procedure. Instead, in his solitude over the far side, some instinct prompted him to see if the machine might cure itself. He checked his switch settings and waited, and the coolant temperature promptly rose to normal. Columbia would give Collins no worry in his 22 hours alone. His anxieties were focused elsewhere with the two men on the surface of the moon. In addition to taking care of Columbia and trying to spot Eagle, Collins had other duties while circling the moon. He conducted science observations and photographed the lunar landscape. With each orbit around the moon, 
He took more photos, thousands in fact. The photos would later be used to map mountains and craters and to identify landmarks for future explorers. When Collins' crewmates began the powered descent to the moon, Collins was in his recipe book of rendezvous scenarios at the ready in case they had to abort. In the final minutes, he heard them grapple with computer alarms and wondered how serious they might be. As Eagle flew onward, Collins was like everyone else, a spellbound listener. When the landing was complete, he heard Charlie Duke tell Armstrong and Aldrin there were smiling faces in Mission Control and all over the world, and Collins radioed, Don't forget one in the command module. But no one, not Armstrong and Aldrin, nor anyone in Mission Control, knew exactly where Eagle was. The pinpoint location would be a helpful, though not essential, piece of information for Collins' computer to have during the return rendezvous. It fell to Collins to try to find the lunar module on the surface using the command module's 28-power sextant. This task was a little like looking down on Manhattan from a height of 69 miles trying to spot a single Greyhound bus with a pair of binoculars, and all the while moving at 3,700 miles per hour. It would have been pointless to try if not for the command module's computer, which could aim the sextant precisely at any feature under Columbia's path and keep it fixed on the target, compensating for the command module's swift motion. Two hours after Eagle touched down, Houston had radioed up a set of coordinates, and Collins was at the eyepiece. When he arrived over the landing site, the sextant whirled into position, and Collins searched frantically for a glint of light. Columbia's speed allowed him only about two minutes to search any given area within the long ellipse of landing site 2, and the sextant's field of view was so narrow that he could scan only one square mile at a time. Two frantic minutes later, Collins had come up empty. Each time he went around the far side, Mission Control had a new set of coordinates for him to try. But on his map, one guess was as much as ten grid squares away from the last. It didn't take Collins long to realize that no one had a handle on the problem. His search continued fruitlessly for the rest of his 22 solo hours. Collins could not see his crewmates on the surface, but he could still hear them via a special moon-earth-moon relay link set up by Mission Control. But for some reason, it went off sometime after the landing, leaving Collins feeling distinctly left out. As Armstrong and Aldrin prepared to go outside, Collins asked once again to listen in, and Mission Control restored the relay. He had hoped to be listening when Armstrong set foot on the moon to finally hear his long-awaited words, but the timing didn't work out. Armstrong was just wiggling through Eagle's hatch when Columbia slipped behind the far side of the moon. By the time he reappeared, Armstrong and Aldrin were putting up the flag with 600 million people as witnesses. While Collins orbited the moon, TV commentators were describing Mike as a lonely man, but they were wrong. Collins was savoring something as unique as a moonwalk. 
the experience of the solo moon voyager. Not since Adam has any human known such solitude as Mike Collins is experiencing during the 47 minutes of each lunar revolution when he's behind the moon with no one to talk to except his tape recorder aboard Columbia. While he waits for his comrades to soar with Eagle from Tranquility Base and rejoin him for the trip back to Earth, Collins, with the help of flight controllers here in Mission Control Center, has kept the command module systems going pocket up, pocket up, pocket up. Collins moved through a continual succession of sun-drenched lunar day, soft earth light, and unyielding blackness. For 48 minutes out of each orbit from loss of signal to acquisition of signal, he knew a solitude unprecedented in human history. Before the flight, he was asked more times than he could count whether the thought of being alone in lunar orbit worried him. No, he answered, I like being with myself. To a fighter pilot, it was the essence of flying, alone in your craft, in control of your craft. It was nothing less than the purest form of freedom. There were lonelier places than the far side of the moon, and Collins had seen them. He had taken an F-86 over the Greenland ice cap in the dead of winter, hundreds of miles from rescue in the event of an emergency and felt more anxiety than he did orbiting the moon. His minutes over the far side were his quiet time, a respite from the constant chatter of mission control on the radio. He was anything but lonely. Still, no human had spent so much time orbiting the moon alone. Collins would later write of his far side passages, I am alone now truly alone, and absolutely isolated from any known life. I am it. If a count were taken, the score would be three billion plus two over on the other side of the moon, and one plus God knows what on this side. I feel this powerfully, not as fear or loneliness, but as awareness, anticipation, satisfaction, confidence, almost exultation. I like the feeling. End quote. In the early hours of Monday morning, Mike Collins circled, worked, and waited for Monday's moment of truth, when the real success of this mission, getting Armstrong and Aldrin back, would hang in the balance. As Neil and Buzz settled in for the night in Eagle, Collins was finishing up his own very long day, covering the windows, turning out the cabin lights, and thinking of his days as an altar boy in the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., when he used to snuff out the altar candles after a service. Before the flight, he had thought he might have some misgivings about going to sleep if there were a problem on board, but Columbia was working like a marvel, and he drifted easily into weightless slumber. This is Apollo Control, 120 hours, 59 minutes, ground elapsed time. We've uh, called the spacecraft Columbia from Mission Control here to wake up uh, Mike Collins. The network is configured so that the limb crew, or Eagle crew, will not be disturbed. Let's uh, join the conversation uh, in progress. Uh, Columbia, Columbia, good morning from Houston. Good morning, 
Hey, Mike, how's it going this morning? Good. Hey, real fine. Uh, while you're I don't playing. know yet. How's it going with you? <laughs> real fine here. Uh, Columbia, request uh, pull and accept. Uh, we'll shove a state vector in for you right away. Okay, it's coming up now, uh, Columbia. Uh, we're going to keep you a little busy here. Capcom Ron Evans had the early morning duty and wanted to make sure Collins was awake. But Mike was in a pretty sound sleep and told Evans he was a little groggy. To Collins, a space day always seemed to start with a bang, with no time even to urinate before the switch throwing began. But today was the return rendezvous day, and that meant there were a multitude of things to keep Mike busy. He had to enter approximately 850 separate computer keystrokes. So, there would be 850 chances for him to make a mistake. Of course, if all went well with Eagle, then it didn't matter too much, as Collins would simply remain in his constant orbital path. But, if any one of a thousand things went wrong with Eagle, then Collins would become the hunter instead of the hunted so he had to maintain a state of readiness all day long. Neil and Buzz were scheduled for liftoff in slightly over three hours. Ron Evans had not even awakened them yet. He wanted Collins to get a head start on them by tracking a lunar landmark one last time to update Columbia's computer prior to Eagle's liftoff. By the time Neil and Buzz got up, Collins had whizzed on by them and would be halfway through breakfast, fully awake. Meanwhile, on the moon, Armstrong was absolutely still, his weight next to nothing, almost floating, and he resisted awakening from such comfort. But he was cold, too cold to sleep. He thought about it, resting there in that wonderful consciousness of half asleep and half awake. He refused to open his eyes. He would just shiver and listen to the sounds that were trickling, whispering, humming, along soft but persistent, an endless mechanical and electronic brook. But ignoring it did not answer the question. Where was he? Neil slowly opened his eyes and could gradually see his surroundings. He focused on the sounds of the bubbling brook, Glowing circles, numbers, letters, buttons, and he saw Buzz, standing at the window, looking out. At what? The moon, Armstrong scolded himself. You are on the moon. You were walking on it just hours ago. At 121 hours, 40 minutes, mission elapsed time, Capcom, Ron Evans radioed the wake-up call to Eagle. Tranquility Base, Tranquility Base, Houston, over. This is Apollo Control. Let's join the call to Tranquility Base. How is the resting standing up there? Did you get a chance to uh, curl up on the engine can? Uh, Roger. Uh, Neil has rigged himself a uh, really good hammock with a uh, weight tether. And he's been lying on the, uh, at the engine cover, and I curled up on the floor, over. Uh, Roger, copy, Buzz. Got uh, a couple of changes to your uh, surface checklist here, and in general, what we're going to want you to do is uh, a P-22 uh, tracking the command module for one last hack on your position there, and 
this will be, in other words, P-57, P-22, and then to press on with a checklist. And the rest of them are a couple of minor changes in the checklist. The main one being that uh, we do not want the rendezvous radar uh, on during the ascent. And we think that this will take care of some of the overflow uh, program alarms that we're getting during descent. Neil and Buzz hadn't anticipated that with the shades in place and all the systems turned off, there would be no source of heat in the cabin. By the time they realized what was happening, it was too late. There was no way to fix it. The oxygen flowing into their spacesuits only made them colder. So they laid in their spacesuits, shivering, hoping the cabin oxygen might be warmer. They took off their helmets. But that only let in the high-pitched whine of the lunar module's coolant pumps. But despite the cold and shivering, Neil had managed a couple hours of sleep. Buzz told Mission Control that Neil had rigged himself a really good hammock from the waist tether and made him a bed on the ascent engine cover. Mission Control replied, Great! Tell him to grab a little breakfast. He has some flying to do. Capcom Evans had also instructed Neil and Buzz to make sure the rendezvous radar was turned off at the beginning of their ascent. Buzz wasn't too happy about that, as he preferred having it on just in case of an emergency. But at the time, he had not yet learned that it was the rendezvous radar that had overloaded Eagle's computer during landing. But Buzz acquiesced to mission control and turned the radar off. Until now, they had been focused on reaching the moon, landing, taking a walk on its surface, setting up experiments, exploring, and gathering evidence. Now that they had done that, and their lunar bounty was on board, job one was to fly back to Earth and land near the aircraft carrier Hornet in the Pacific. Then they'd meet the President. But first, they had to launch from this dead world and rejoin Columbia in orbit. At Mission Control in Houston, there was quite a crowd of people hunched around every available console. Jim Lovell, Neil's backup, came on the radio with some unaccustomed formality. Eagle and Columbia, this is the backup crew. Our congratulations for yesterday's performance, and our prayers are with you for the rendezvous. Over. Both Neil and Buzz thanked Jim, and Collins added, Glad to have a big room of people looking over our shoulder. Eagle and uh, Columbia, this is the backup crew. Our congratulations to yesterday's performance, and our prayers are with you for the rendezvous. Over. Mission Control had everything running smoothly, with one exception. After the moonwalk, when climbing back into the Eagle, one of the astronauts' backpacks brushed against the lunar module's ascent arm circuit breaker and broke it. And to make matters worse, Neil and Buzz had thrown out practically all their tools in the interest of less weight, ensuring they would have enough boost to reach Columbia. After examining the circuit breaker more closely, Buzz thought that if he could find something in the lunar module to push into the circuit breaker, it might hold. But since it was electrical, he decided not to put his finger in or use anything that had metal on the end. But he had a felt-tip pin 
in the shoulder pocket of his suit. After moving the countdown procedure up by a couple of hours in case it didn't work, Buzz inserted the pin into the small opening where the circuit breaker switch should have been and pushed it in. Sure enough, the circuit breaker held. Uh, tranquility, Houston, uh, for your information, uh, the circuitry looks uh, real fine on that Athen engine arm circuit breaker. Roger, uh, I don't think I could get it out now if I wanted to. Uh, Roger, we copy. With the circuit breaker problem solved, Neil and Buzz performed an intricate series of star sightings through Eagle's telescope, ascertaining their position by several different stars including Rigel, Navi, and Capella, to align Eagle's guidance platform prior to liftoff. By averaging their readings, they would know what kind of orbit they needed to rendezvous with Columbia. Tranquility Base, Houston. Go ahead, Houston. Uh, Roger, uh, for your uh, P-57 arrow, uh, we did a little looking around, and it looks like uh, Sirius and Rigel out of detent six uh, would be real good on that. Uh, the sun angle on Sirius is about 43 degrees, and on Rigel it's about 55 degrees. Over. At 12.52 p.m. Houston time, Armstrong and Aldrin stood side by side at the Eagles' controls, helmets and gloves locked in place. The first launch from another world was two minutes away. The ascent engine hidden under the can-shaped cover behind them, had only 3,500 pounds of thrust, but that was enough to propel the ascent stage from the lunar surface into orbit. It was another of Apollo's engineering marvels, for it was even simpler in design than the service propulsion system engine. Like the SPS, it burned hypergolics that ignite on contact, eliminating the need for an ignition system. Once the valves opened, fuel would flow into the combustion chamber and the engine would fire. And it had to fire. There was no backup for the ascent engine. If the astronauts could not get it to fire, they had no recourse. They would die on the moon. Before the flight, Neil Armstrong had worried about the valves opening and he'd suggested to the engineers that they consider replacing the electrical actuating system with a mechanical one that he or Aldrin could trigger by hand if the normal method failed. The engineers considered and rejected the idea. They had high confidence in the electrical system, and Armstrong knew there were several redundant ways to fire the engine. If necessary, they could bypass the computer. One of those would work. There was no other way to think about it. To Aldrin, the thought of being stranded on the moon forever simply didn't exist. To conjure that dark thought would have been to go against the whole philosophy behind the mission. Everything had been stacked to ensure their survival, and now, as he and Armstrong followed the checklist through the final minutes of their launch countdown, Aldrin assumed that at zero, the lunar stillness would yield to the power of a rocket come to life. But, inside Columbia, Mike Collins could not be so confident. Lunar orbit seemed remarkably safe compared to the spot Armstrong and Aldrin were in, perched motionless on the surface with a single rocket engine to lift them off. 
They belonged to the moon. Not only did the engine have to work, it had to work long enough for Eagle to reach some kind of orbit. Collins was prepared to rescue them if they couldn't make it all the way up to 69 miles. He could drop down to 50,000 feet, but not too much lower than that. Some of the lunar mountains were 20 or 30,000 feet high, and now, as he waited for liftoff, Collins could no longer push aside his darkest fears. Collins wrote, quote, My secret terror for the last six months has been leaving them on the moon and returning to Earth alone. Now I am within minutes of finding out the truth of the matter. If they fail to rise from the surface or crash back into it, I'm not going to commit suicide. I am coming home forthwith, but I will be a marked man for life, and I know it. It's almost better not to have the option I enjoy. End quote. As Armstrong and Aldrin made their final preparations for leaving the moon, Collins listened and sweated out the most anxious moments of his career. Date scale uh, 25. At translation, four jets. Balance couple on. CTCA jets. Stop push button reset. Board aboard stage reset. Dead band minimum. At control, remote control. Earth control auto. Both. Crew of Eagle going through their pre ignition checklist. We're standing by for two minutes to put uh, a guidance steering in the eggs. Eagle Houston, uh, you're looking good to us. With 45 seconds to go, Armstrong reminded Aldrin of the last actions they would take on the surface of the moon. He said, quote, At five seconds, I'm going to get abort stage and engine arm, and you're going to hit proceed. End quote. Aldrin responded with, Right. And that's all, Armstrong added wryly. If everything worked, he and Aldrin would just be along for the ride from the moment of liftoff until they reached orbit. Now, Aldrin began the final countdown. Okay, Master Armand. Guidance reports both navigation systems on Eagle are looking good. Whiskey blanks. Fine. He pushed the button. For a fraction of a second, there was stillness. And then, suddenly, there was a muffled bang of pyrotechnic bolts and then a smooth, steady push, like a high-speed elevator, as Eagle ascended from the moon. Off, Aldrin exulted. Look at that stuff go all over the place. Outside, a spray of gold foil and debris from the descent stage flew away in all directions. The flag toppled to the dust, and the sea of tranquility fell away as Eagle ascended quietly, headed for lunar orbit. Very quiet ride. There's that one crater on there. Thousand feet high, eighty feet uh, per second vertical rise. Eagle Houston to request manual start override. 
2,600 feet altitude. Salutations from the Buckeye State. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 226 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 11 Moon Launch. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list and connect with me on Twitter and Facebook. You can do all that as well as download every episode of the podcast on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. In case you haven't heard, there is a new RSS feed for the first 14 episodes of the podcast. You can find it on the homepage on the right side of the page. This means that the first 14 episodes are once again available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and all your favorite podcatchers. To find the podcast there, search for Space Rocket History Archive plan to add four or five more episodes to the archive this month, as Bandwidth provides. Today, we salute my Patreon donors. Patreon donors give a small amount monthly to support the podcast. Thanks, Patreon donors, who honored your pledge this month. I had a few afterthoughts about this week's episode. First, I want to give credit to a few of the sources I've been using for this series, Buzz Aldrin and his book, Magnificent Desolation, Mike Collins and his book, Carrying the Fire, Neil Armstrong's A Life of Flight, Andrew Chaikin, A Man on the Moon, and the Apollo 11 Lunar Surface Journal. I read in Buzz's book, Magnificent Desolation, that Buzz still has the broken circuit breaker switch and the felt tip pin that armed the engine to allow it to ignite. Strangely enough, I found a little bit of difference between Aldrin's account and Armstrong's account of the pin rescue. Aldrin said it was a felt-tip pin, and Armstrong said it was a ballpoint space pin. Also, Armstrong wrote it was Houston that came up with the solution, while Aldrin wrote that he figured it out himself. According to my research in the Apollo 11 Lunar Surface Journal, Aldrin was right in both accounts. But these are minor points that are not worth dwelling on. Wow, Mike Collins was really sweating it out in orbit. I believe it truly was his greatest fear that he would have to leave Neil and Buzz on the moon. To Collins, it would have almost been as bad as being stranded on the moon with them. Almost. If they had failed to lift off from the moon, Collins would have had some serious survivor guilt. But thankfully, that didn't happen. Okay, I have posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on my homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. Sadly, there were no new donations this week. That would be zero, zilch, and nada. And it looks like we may have lost three Patreons. So, it was a very difficult financial week for the podcast. That brings the Patreon total back down to 135, 15 short 
of the goal of 150 before the end of the year, and our overall donor total remains at 250 with a goal of reaching 300 by the end of the year. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2017, please consider supporting the podcast if you're financially able. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded, and I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. You don't have to donate much. You can make a one-time $10 donation at the Vostok level or sign up with Patreon for a small monthly donation. Just go to the home page and click on one of the links on the top right side of the page and begin your support of the Space Rocket History Podcast. For those of you who have already donated for 2017, I certainly do appreciate it. I have an item to give away this week. It is the NASA 3 and one half inch in diameter meatball sticker. To select the winner... I gave each donor a number, and I put the range in Google's random number generator and got the number for Scott Bodish at the Apollo level. Scott, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. have several more of these 3.5 inch NASA stickers, so we'll have a new drawing for donors of 2017 next week. Want to encourage everyone to share the podcast? Feel free to link the homepage or a particular episode on all social media. And thanks to those who've already done so. This is the end of content for this episode, and you are welcome to stay and listen to my off topic thoughts if you want. Thanks for sticking around, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Next week, we will rendezvous and dock. In podcast news, September had a good amount of downloads but it was less than August. In September, the podcast was downloaded in 90 countries around the world. These are the top 10 countries with the most episode downloads in September. Number 1, U.S. Number 2, U.K. Number 3, Australia. Number 4, Germany reclaimed 4th place, and Canada slipped to 5th place. Japan at number 6, Sweden number 7, New Zealand at number 8, France at number 9, and number 10 was the Netherlands. In personal news, as I mentioned before, we are traveling, and uh, I thought I would share some of the things that we went to see while we were traveling that would be kind of related to space and aviation and things like that. This past week, we had a chance to visit the Henry Ford Museum of American Innovation in Dearborn, Michigan. Now, it wasn't cheap at $22 per person, but it was very impressive. The first thing I viewed was the presidential cars. They had the car President Reagan used after Hinckley shot him in 1981. It was a Lincoln model, 1972 model. Then I viewed Kennedy's car that he was assassinated in, which was a 1961 Lincoln. And they also had Franklin Roosevelt's 1939 Lincoln there. So after I viewed that, I moved on to the railroad exhibit, where I viewed and climbed inside the biggest steam-powered locomotive I have ever seen. It was huge. Then they had a wonderful section called the Driving America section. It had cars that were innovative, over the past 100 years, and there were a lot of cars. 
And uh, if you want to see that whole section and go slow, I mean, you can read. Each car has a little placard and you can read about it. But it'll take some time, but it was good. I thoroughly enjoyed those cars. Then there was a section called Heroes of the Sky, and they had pretty much the requisite DC3 and Ford tri-motor, things like that. Other sections in the museum that I haven't mentioned so far are Made in America, and then there was the Dymaxion House, which was very interesting, and a section called Mathematica, and a section called Fully Furnished, and a section called Agriculture. So if you take your time, it will take all day to experience this museum. And that was just the museum. I didn't have time to visit the Greenfield Village and the Ford Factory Tour, which were available for more money. So this museum was excellent and well worth the visit. Okay, that is about all I have for this week. I will try to have episode 227 ready by next Thursday. So long for now.